Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Lira, and I'm really excited to bring today's story. It's one that I'm obsessed with, and it's one that other people have been obsessed with for decades. It's a tale as old as time, a scorned woman. So the woman that we're going to be discussing today is Betty Broderick. It's really funny how I discovered Betty Broderick because I actually found her watching an Oprah interview on YouTube. The clip was from like 1999. Now you guys know how YouTube is though. It was a clip that just picked up in like the middle of the interview. So it's the middle of the interview and there's this cute, older, I would say middle-aged blonde woman discussing how much she loved being a parent and how her and her husband took on very classic gender roles and that he went out and slayed dragons and she held everything down at the fort and she had a book that was so in my head I was like oh my goodness this lady I need her book she just seems like she really knew what she was doing and you know I like advice from her women so I was like "Ooh, I got to know what she's talking about so I go to google Betty Broderick Oprah interview book and I found out that Oprah was interviewing her about the book she wrote and about her time in prison because she killed her ex-husband and his new wife. (gasps) Uh, And I was like, we're doing this story for Storytime Podcast. And this is a story that I've been compiling for months. I read her book. I've watched so many interviews, so many TV shows, and I can't wait. So thank you so much for tuning in and your continued support. As always, go check out my social media websites. Instagram is Storytime Slayer and Facebook is also Storytime Slayer. You can email me at storytimepods at gmail.com. I'm always interested in having other people on to talk about some of these cases with me. And anyway, without further ado, let's get started. Okay, so many people have conflicting opinions on this case. Betty Broderick is the definition of a scorned woman. I'll give you all the facts so you can decide for yourselves if Betty was a scorned woman or a dangerous, greedy one. According to Betty's book, Telling on Myself, and her interview with Oprah in 1999, Dan and Betty were both very compatible. They had similar backgrounds and upbringings. Both were from New York. Both grew up in devout Catholic families. Both had a private Catholic education. They were beautiful. Both their fathers served in the military. And they were both part of the baby boomer generation. Now, Betty was the middle of five children, and Dan was the oldest of nine. Holy shit. Now, I don't know as much about Dan's childhood, but I do know more about Betty's due to her book. So, Betty said that Dan's dad was an alcoholic and kind of a dominating head of the household. He controlled the purse strings, so to speak, whereas Betty's dad not only worked, but he would shuffle the kids around and run errands and do kind of a few more chores that maybe Betty's mom should have done, but Betty's mom refused to drive. Betty seemed to really resent her mom, but I couldn't quite pinpoint why. Her mother sounded a bit selfish and not a very doting mom, but she also mentions that everyone had to walk on eggshells with her mom. This is kind of how Betty became a doormat and disdained confrontation where she avoided it for many years. I think this is just kind of Betty backtracking and letting everybody know like, listen, I am a doormat. I am passive and it's because my mom was an asshole. I don't know. So next to murdering Dan and Linda, Betty is known for extremely high work ethic. She said this started because she wanted to avoid being at home. 
so she would babysit. Now, she did this when she was 10, and she really quickly got a reputation for doing really well with kids and being responsible. By 13, she was 5 foot 10. Okay? Damn! She was a gorgeous blonde bombshell, and she began to model a couple days a week at a fancy department store. On top of modeling and babysitting, Betty got herself another gig working with her sister at a restaurant called Shaft's. By 16, she was able to start saving for college and even had enough money to buy herself a GM convertible in the color green. Green like money because that girl paid cash for it at 16 years old. That's awesome. So it's obvious that Betty had a million things going for her. She was beautiful. She was smart. She was very hardworking. She had good grades, came from a good family, lived in an affluent area, and had a great head on her shoulders. She was headed to college, and the world was her oyster. Now, Betty attended college from 1965 to 1969 while she pursued her education in, I believe it was early childhood development. It was her freshman year and Dan's senior year at Notre Dame that they met. Betty attended a Notre Dame football weekend, chaperoned, of course, but this is where her and Dan met. He asked for a pin. Now, on a side note, something that I kind of liked, Betty mentions in her book that she always kept some cab money and a Tiffany Company pin in her purse. Anyway, Dan used this pin to write his name right on the white linen tablecloth. But I think this was just kind of like a shock factor, like, ooh, okay. And he wrote Daniel T. Broderick III, M-D-A. He said that the A stood for almost. You know, he was on his way to pursuing a doctorate degree at Cornell University. Now, they chatted a lot and they found that they were both from New York and all the things I mentioned before, you know, Catholic families, both shared the same family values and unbeknownst to Betty, but Dan told his friends that night he was going to marry her. Now, it was 1966 when Dan came to New York to attend Cornell University and he immediately wanted to link up with Betty. And he did. So Betty and Dan did date on and off through college, but they did see other people. They did break up several times, but no matter what, Dan still pursued Betty and wanted to marry her. On a side note, (laughs) I think this is really funny too. She said that for her 19th birthday, Dan gave her a pastel painted portrait of himself and it was huge. Let me repeat this. This was a gift for her 19th birthday. What the heck? Okay, so while Dan pursued Betty, Betty loaded up on her college courses. She was paying per semester anyway, so she was able to complete her four-year degree in just three. So that just left her a student-teacher commitment her senior year, in which afterwards she began teaching and finally said yes to marrying Dan. Everyone says that Betty's mom went full bridezilla on the wedding. She wanted complete control. They probably flipped the bill, I'm sure, Betty's family. So her mom picked out everything. Betty said everything but Dan's outfit. In the book, and I quote, she said, He had in mind a navy blue pinstripe suit with a bright colored blue and pink flowered tie he'd found for 99 cents with a pair of brown wing-tipped shoes to finish off the ensemble. Wow. So this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. For one, on the wedding night, Dan was not a gentle 
lover. Betty was kind of expecting something more intimate and romantic, I'm sure. And he did a very like non-intimate, climb on top, clothes on, push the underwear over, rough encounter. And for two, she claims he was really quick to have her dote on him. She says in her book, he started off as soon as the honeymoon, insisting they had like no housekeepers for the house they were staying at, that she would cook the food. And then she also mentions that they completely relied on Betty's savings, her car, and her connections when they started her life together. And Betty was totally okay with that. She was happy to do it. She was happy in their gender roles. And Dan was going to be a successful doctor. After they married, she ended up moving into their dorm. And uh, like I said, she was there for it. She was rubber meets the road. I'm going to support him. We're going to work really hard while we're young. And that's how people become successful families. And that's going to be us. So this is kind of where their mindset was at at the time. Although Betty claims to have started to see warning signs from Dan, like the way he acted on their honeymoon and the fact that he began drinking more, she didn't just walk away because, well, when Dan pulled that stunt at the wedding with her mom, it really pissed Betty's mom off, I guess. And so Betty's mom packed up all Betty's stuff and told Betty that she needed to come get whatever belongings that she had and she was going to throw out what Betty didn't come and get. Well, Betty was living in this dorm with Dan, so she couldn't really take a lot of her stuff, but she did go get what she could. And I believe that kind of set the tone for this is your bed, lie in it. And I'm not, I can't remember where I heard this from, so don't quote me on this, but I do believe once Betty tried to go home just for a little bit, maybe, and her mom and dad let her come stay one night, but her mom made it pretty clear that she was married and she wasn't going to live there. Now, don't quote me on that. I've watched so many shows and, and movies and documentaries and stuff. Yeah. So the next thing that happened was Betty found out that she was pregnant and their first daughter, Kim, was born January 29th, 1970. Let's not forget, Betty's been supporting this small but growing family while Dan went to medical school and due to her needing a sitter she had to quit her job teaching and find other ways to support the family. She instead began nannying and babysitting for doctors. This way she could take Kim with her and that's a really good idea and something that some new moms do as their first jobs getting back. So Betty was obviously a team player. She knew Dan would be successful and that this is what successful people do. They put in their work while they're young. However, Dan took a little bit longer on his end of the bargain because after medical school and before his residency, he actually decided he didn't want to be a doctor. He was going to go to law school. So Dan was a pretty studious man because he did attend Harvard Law School. And before he graduated, Betty had had two miscarriages. And I'm not sure in the timeline of their marriage when they lost a baby, but I know before they had their last son, she gave birth to a baby that didn't even live long enough to be named. But before 1973, she did give birth to their daughter, Lee. This is right before Dan graduated and the family moved to San Diego for his first law firm job. By 1979, Dan and Betty had had their last child. So at this point, they have Kim, Lee, Dan Jr., and now baby Rhett. Betty did a lot of jobs to support their family while he attended school and she claims while he went to school, 
and in his first years working that he had to go out and socialize and fraternize to build connections and he kind of became an alcoholic and absentee father and just not a good husband due to his demanding work and career building. So she said that Dan socializing in late night drinking with other attorneys was making connections for work. But in her account, she describes Dan as being a really sloppy drunk who didn't pay her and the kids any mind. And I just wonder how sloppy of a drunk he could have been to also maintain his grades and make connections and focus on his career too. But that's her version of events. She did work her ass off too, though, making ends meet. At one point, she even did real estate. So something very important to mention while we're unraveling this ball is that Dan was the person in charge of the money and Betty really never knew where they were at, but she does outline a lot of financial practices that Dan had that just didn't make sense. Like one time he canceled the car insurance, even though she'd already paid it up for like six months. And when he got the money back, he didn't tell Betty, of course, but he went and got himself a bunch of really expensive clothes at like Barney's. Then their car got stolen and he was sick about it. She didn't even think much about it. She's like, okay, whatever, it's insured. But Dan was sick about it and he knew it's because he canceled the damn insurance. So with Dan being in charge of the money, that meant they lived a lot on credit, she said. It was kind of a fake it till you make it lifestyle. But after five years at the San Diego law firm and Betty's support, Dan finally went on his own and he took on a lot of malpractice cases, which made him rake in the big dollars. I also want to mention that he was really gaudy and tacky when he got money. He named himself Count de Money, like Count as in Count Dracula, and he bought a red lined cape. He also got his nose fixed with a nose job, and he had a ton of lavishly hand-tailored suits. I guess he really knew how to stand out in a crowd. Him and Betty both. I mean, they looked picture perfect together. Now, Betty finally got to quit working, but everyone says that she was the perfect mom. She was a doting mother. She did all the activities. She would coach. She was obsessed with her kids. She was mom of the year. Mom of the year. But by all appearances, they did it and had it all. The perfect family of success. But that was not the case. For one, this was all fake it till you make it. And there was tremendous amount of tension between Betty and Dan that that just kept mounting. And also they were in a lot of debt because of the way that they balanced money and all Dan's uh, hello probably damn 18 years he was at college but they never actually considered divorce this was obviously for one the catholic in them and i think they did take their commitment seriously and they just knew it was really hard being adults is hard but in about 1983 dan maybe wasn't taking his commitment as seriously dun 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 okay 1983 is when dan met linda Linda was a lobby receptionist in Dan's building. Betty was made aware of Linda by Dan. She told Oprah that she heard him comment on how beautiful the 22-year-old Linda was. This was something Betty never heard Dan say about another woman. Now, side note, in Betty's book, there are times that Betty insinuated Dan could have potentially been gay or bisexual due to some friendship choices and the amount of time he spent with them, plus his lavish style. But I don't actually think that's true 
because Betty was taken so aback by Linda that I don't think this perfect Catholic girl who did everything right would have been less distraught if Dan were secretly gay. So I think she's just making shit up. But Betty did have a lurking suspicion about Linda because Dan made a comment at the party about how beautiful she was. Then later, Dan told Betty that he hired somebody at work to help him, and she was so excited because then Dan could spend more time with them. And when she asked him who it was, he told him it was Linda. And let me tell you, Betty Broderick knew there was a reason that he hired Linda other than helping him at work because Linda could not even type. Okay, Dan was a damn lawyer, and he hired a personal assistant that could not type. She also didn't have the scope of knowledge of someone who would need to assist Dan, like about medical malpractice suits, anything about the law, nada. She didn't even really have an extensive education. But Dan dismissed Betty's suspicions and insisted nothing was going on with Linda. November 7th, Betty's birthday came, and Betty was really upset because she just knew some shit was going on with Linda, especially with Dan always being gone and her always being accused of crazy if she asks him or questions him. She knew he was having an affair, and she actually attempted suicide. Maybe it wasn't a full-on attempt. Maybe it was just a cry for help and attention from Dan, but it was that bad in her mind that she had to do this either way. I'm going to play a clip of her detailing her state of mind amid her suicide attempt. Now, I believe this was during her second trial. When to bed, I slipped my wrist and swallowed every pill I could find in the house. When Dan found me the next morning with all the blood in the bed and everything, he, he started crying. And he said that he wished I hadn't done that. That what would the kids do without me? And that there was nothing going on with Linda. And, and how, how many times can he tell me that there's nothing going on with Linda? And so I wanted to believe him. That was her recounting her trying to kill herself the night of her birthday, which was November 7th. A few weeks later, November 22nd, is Dan's birthday. And with Betty really wanting to repair things between her and Dan, she was going to surprise him. Plus, her best friend told her that she needed to really make her presence known at that office. She was Dan's wife. So, she did decide to make herself known at the office. And I have a clip of Betty telling what happened on Dan's birthday. Mm -hmm. And I never went down and confronted anyone, you know, with anger, but I went for his birthday and brought champagne and a present for him, and I got dressed real pretty, and when I got there, uh, it was about, I think it was four or five in the afternoon for sunset, and they had never, Dan and Linda had never come back from lunch, and I was very upset. I saw her office for the first time with a picture of Dan on the wall that was taken before we were married, and I thought that was really improper, not professional, and, and he never came back. And I I was very upset and very mad. I went home. Okay, so that was her outlining what happened whenever she went to his office. Now, by the way, the gift that she had for him was a 24-karat gold tire pressure gauge to go with his midlife crisis sports car, which I think is really funny. And also in Betty's book, other interviews, and stories that people have recounted, Dan's office had been decorated for his birthday There was wine glasses with a little bit left in them, champagne, a chocolate cake, which had been eaten into. 
So obviously lines had been crossed in Dan's office with Linda for his birthday. Betty said, get rid of the girl, but she actually told him, get rid of the bitch or get out. Dan still denied, denied, denied. Um, Dan's birthday was really the first indication that Betty could not take any more of his shit because this is what she did following that. And I threw his clothes in the backyard and burnt them. Yeah, yeah, she lit that man's shit on fire. Now, she did say she didn't um, throw in the cape, the red-lined one, but I bet she sure as hell wish she did. Betty and Dan had several passionate arguments throughout the relationship. Once, Dan threw a fish tank over the balcony. There's several undocumented, documented, and recounted stories over the years of times they had physical altercations, even throwing like a ketchup bottle in fits of anger. But it wasn't until February 1985 that Dan finally moved out and filed for divorce. It wasn't actually until September that he filed for divorce, but still, upon moving out and filing divorce, he finally admitted that Betty had been right all along about the affair between him and Linda. Holy crap, okay? I know everyone is wondering, what the hell took so long? Well, let's not forget, Dan was a prestigious attorney at this point. So, for one, with the Catholic background, the history between him and Betty, I'm sure he had to decide if he actually wanted to go through with the divorce. And then for two, being the lawyer that he was, he spent a lot of time preparing for leaving Betty. I don't care what anybody says, this is not a conspiracy. Dan Broderick had obviously made preparations because unlike fair divorces, she had become completely dependent on what he demanded. He did volunteer 9K a month until they reached a settlement. By the end of it, though, he had placed a contingency on her money. So, like, $200 for any time she cursed on the voicemail. $500 for any time she trespassed or dropped by unannounced. And that included if she stopped by to see her children at Dan and Linda's house, even if Dan and Linda weren't home. She did do that, though. Once she even went over there, saw a pie Linda baked, and smeared it all over Dan's bed and luxurious wardrobe. Now, with all these contingencies on the money by Dan, one month she owed him $13,000. Now, in an attempt to show Dan that he needed her, at least for the kids, she dropped them off one by one on his doorstep. It didn't work, though. I mean, God, Dan had plenty of money. He was making well over $100,000 a month. So he just hired sitters and more house help, and he took this opportunity to get full custody of the children. I mean, they really were pushing Betty. Seriously. I'm going to play some of the notorious voicemails that Betty Broderick's known for having left on the answering machine. This is a message to head and the You have one hell of a nerve dumping the kids here on the sidewalk and zooming away without making any attempt to communicate with me about my plans for the weekend. Hey, come get the kids. I want to get rid of them, but I don't like driving to your neighborhood. Hurry up, come get them. Oh. Yeah, pretty intense. And she did that a lot. Okay, so let's catch up to what we got now. Betty, at this point, has lost her kids, isn't allowed to stay in their family home, was completely dependent on whatever dollar amount Dan gave her, and he managed to pull a legal loophole to sell their family home without her consent or knowledge before their divorce was finalized. 
Yeah. So it was really selling the family home without Betty because that was the only collateral that had her name on it that drove her crazy. She literally drove to Dan's new beautiful home that he bought and shared with Linda and the children and he refused to talk to her. So she meticulously lined up her SUV with his front door, no big deal, and just, you know, rammed into it. (laughs) Yeah. So this move got Betty under a 72-hour psychiatric hold. Oh, I think she needed it, right? Just a little break. So with Dan being an attorney, he really knew how to have an amicable divorce and how to play dirty. So although it doesn't excuse Betty's behavior, I do think that a lot of the shit Dan did was so messed up because Dan was supported by Betty for years. For years, Betty supported Dan only for him to trade her in for a newer model and cut her out of this fabulous life. In 1986, July, Dan was granted the divorce and full custody of the kids. It was later in 1988 that they would settle negotiations. Dude, that means negotiations went on for like two years. Betty was granted custody of their daughter, Lee, who was then 17 and given $16,000 a month until she remarried. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but... Dan was making over $100,000 a month. I think over $120,000 a month. And Betty had worked really hard for a long time. She was totally bent over. Although Betty was reported to be a materialistic person who had always had a taste for nicer things, she still maintains that this was not about the money. This was about the betrayal and Dan's control over her life. I mean, let's not forget, although Dan should not have lost his life, he really did a number on her through the legal system. They both were kind of being assholes to each other. But I think Betty clung on to the idea of Dan having a change of heart for a bit too long, and that really made it so that he was able to take full advantage of the situation. That's wrong. So a couple weeks after the divorce was finalized, Betty bought a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson. Dun, dun, dun. All right, we all know where this is going, right? So April 22nd, 1988, that was the spring following the divorce settlement. Dan and Linda married. Betty, of course, was super upset. She cried, wept, gained 60 pounds, and became really depressed. Now, although the divorce, ooh, although the divorce was done, the settlement was reached. Betty kept doing things to piss off Dan. I can only imagine. Now, remember, Betty doesn't have custody of her other two, her other two children, Dan Jr. and Rhett. And the only way to talk to them and see them is basically through whatever Dan allows. So, of course, Betty was still calling and leaving threatening messages. And she received a letter from Dan's attorney that threatened to hold her in contempt of court if she did not stop with the harassing voicemails. So, November 5th, 1989, she can't sleep that night. She gets up and she's looking at the letter and she wrote on the bottom of it, I can't take this anymore. Them constantly insinuating I'm crazy. She's maintained over the years that this was actually a suicide note. She then grabbed her gun and went to end this shit once and for all. She says her plan was to go into the house and make them listen to her and then blow her brains out all over Dan's room. Now, just before dawn, a very shaken up Betty drove over to his house and used her daughter's key to sneak into his home, down the hallway and into his bedroom. 
I'm going to play Betty testifying to the events in her trial. This is from her first trial. I just can't stand this. What were you gonna do when you got over there? Just talk, talk to him like I have done before, and just tell him that if you don't cut this out, I'm just gonna kill myself. And I, I, I wanted to kill myself right in front of him, and just splash my brains all over his damn house. What happened when you went in the door? It looked looked like Linda moved, and and she went toward Dan, and Dan went toward the phone. They moved, and I moved, and it was over. What did you, what's the first thing you remember? The, you remember pulling the trigger? No, I remember the noise of the gun. And how many times do you remember the gun going off? I remember the real loud noise. Five times. That is her testimony in her first trial. And now I will play you a clip of her testimony in the second trial. The movement that I made into their bedroom woke them up and they moved and somebody screamed call the police and I said no and I just fired the gun and this big noise went off and and then I grabbed the phone and got the hell out of there but I wasn't even in that room I mean it just was an explosion just I moved they moved the gun went off and it was like "Ah!" and it was that fast hmm interesting to say the least so betty's story is that she went in to talk to them and kill herself but instead without even saying or an exchange of words between them she started shooting them well the gun went off i don't know any gun that goes off five times without somebody shooting it but okay the question was never though whether betty did this the question was had she been pushed enough and abused enough for this to be a less heinous crime per se after running out of the house betty drove off and i think she pulled over on a payphone and and first she called her daughter lee and told her what happened and said the bitch is dead then she ring rung her daughter kim and told her that she had shot Linda and Dan, but she didn't think that they were dead, so that Kim just needed to stay calm and go home and figure out if they were okay. Kim later went on to be the prosecutor's star witness in the first trial against Betty Broderick, which took place October of 1990. Betty had been charged with two counts of murder. The jury was completely deadlocked, and it was declared a mistrial. One juror said to have questioned what took Betty so long to kill Dan. And that was a man that questioned this. And the second trial, which took place in December of 1991, the prosecution knew what to anticipate as far as Betty's defense. And damn, they hammered hard. Betty's attorney, Jack Hurley, says that the prosecution got about 40% of the defense's evidence inadmissible. In the conclusion of the trial, the jurors were 11 to 1. 11 wanting murder in the first degree and one wanting the lesser manslaughter charge. After four days, they revisited the phone call that played during the trial between Danny Jr. and Betty. I'm gonna play that call for you guys. Now this call is infamous. Why does he like me anymore? Because he, he's been, he's sick of you. Could, could you guys get 
heartbreaking. So the jury revisited this recording in particular and due to the intense emotion that was going on the jury decided that she was guilty but of the lesser charge murder in the second degree she was sentenced to 32 years to life now she exhausted all of her appeals relatively quickly and had to wait for her parole hearing in 2011 in 2011 her daughter kim and son dan jr the boy who had the conversation on the phone They spoke against the release of their mother. So did Dan's brother, Larry, and Linda's family. However, Betty's daughter, Lee, and youngest son, Rhett, both pleaded for their mom's release. Lee even saying that she could live with with her. She was denied because she has yet to show remorse for her behavior without excusing it. She maintained she's sorry for the pain it caused everyone and that it happened at all, but she unfortunately has shown very little remorse for the fact that she pulled trigger now she'll be eligible for another hearing in 2032 betty's currently 72 years old and is serving time in the california institute for women they say that she's a model prisoner and surprisingly betty's admired by a lot of women the siblings visit their mom on her birthday and mother's day per her request but she says she doesn't want them to have to spend their holidays and have too many memories visiting their mom in prison this is per her book That is what I read. Now, Kim, her daughter, put out a book about Betty Broderick being her mother, but I can't really find where I can download or purchase this book at. So if you guys have any information on it, please email me. I'm so curious to read it and hear what Kim has to say. I do know that Kim told people years ago that it was weird having mom in prison, but they did speak and that she sent her mom packages and things like that. Anyway, guys, let me know what y'all thought about the Betty Broderick case. This case is so crazy to me. Hit me up on social media. Please, if you listen through Apple, leave me a review. Preferably five stars, but honesty is always the best policy. And holler at me if you guys want to get on the show and have a conversation. All right. Have a good day, guys. Bye.